Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk, I'm Elissa Branch, and this is Housing Wire Daily. Today's episode of Houses in Motion features Shaniqua Badger, the head of Corcoran Global Living's Badger Real Estate Group. Badger joins us to discuss the Bay Area market and affordable home prices. She also talks about problems impacting both real estate agents of color and minority home buyers. But before we listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. At TMS, we believe in building relationships and helping to grow happiness. It's what we do best. Let us show you that efficient and transparent communication exists in subservicing. Switching from your current subservicer to TMS couldn't be easier. Learn more today at subservicing.themoneysource.com. Hello, and welcome to Houses in Motion. I'm Matthew Blake, Senior Real Estate Reporter for Housing Wire. Each week as part of Housing Wire Daily, we interview someone in real estate about the industry's most compelling trends. For this episode, we talked to Shaniqua Badger. Shaniqua is based in Oakland, and she leads her own Bay Area team for Corcoran Global Living, called the Badger Real Estate Group. Shaniqua and I discussed gentrification in Oakland. I also asked Shaniqua, who is Black, her thoughts on the declining Black home ownership rate. And we discussed why so few real estate agents are people of color. The conversation veered in some unexpected directions. Shaniqua, for example, feels that outside investors who bought single-family homes during the Great Recession have significantly contributed to the lack of Bay Area housing stock today. I think you'll find our conversation interesting, or at least one that provokes your own thoughts about some of real estate's most difficult issues. Shaniqua, welcome to the show. Good morning. Well, thank you for having me. So today we're going to talk about a lot of serious and even polarizing issues, rapid gentrification and turnover and who lives in a community, real estate's history of racism and the present general lack of uh, minority real estate agents and real estate executives. But I first wanted to start with this. Why are you a real estate agent? Why have you stuck around in the profession for over 15 years now? What do you like about it? Well, I wish I had this wonderful story about why I got in. Um, in short, um, you know, I, I was laid off um, many, many, many moons ago from my biotech uh, job. And I said, well, what am I going to do? And somebody said, you should get into real estate. You'd be great. And I was like, mm, maybe, okay. But that, that, that theory of getting into real estate as a job or a way to make a living has absolutely changed. Um, 17 years later, uh, I have a passion for it. I have a passion for being able to transition people's lives into something that their family tree is able to benefit from. Um, and, I, and, I, and I have the ability and my team has the ability to say that they're a part of that process. And so that, that creates a, what some people would say, a why or a passion um, that's far bigger than I am. Um, so that's why I've been able to stay in it. And, and now we've, we've been able to create a voice for people who don't necessarily have a voice in, in, in the area of real estate, whether you're buying, selling, or whether you're a practitioner, 
Um, you know, we've been able to move into the areas of advocacy, which is really very important to making people feel like that they are a part of the process. And why were you initially re- reluctant to, to become an agent when people suggested that to you? Why, why were you thinking? <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, I, I had a, a, a good friend um, who made the suggestion and I said, well, I don't want to do that because my dad is studying to be a real estate agent. I thought that at that time I was in my twenties um, that real estate was like literally being sold by people who were seasoned. I won't call them old, but I will say that I thought that they were very seasoned. And um, ironically, I'm probably the same age as those seasoned people are now. (laughs) Um, But um, again, the image of a, what a real estate agent looks like is transitioning these days. And, Um, You know, you're seeing a a more of a a young and a fresh approach to selling and buying real estate. So, you know, I'm I hope that I'm still staying um, in a part of that fresh and new way of of selling and and practicing real estate. But, yeah, this is what was a thing that kind of made me go, don't really want to get into real estate. But um, no, for sure. I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. I know the NAR has a statistic that. The median age for the real estate agent is 56. So I think that, yeah, um, it's definitely uh, a profession that has, yeah, an association of sort of an older agent. So have you been practicing in Oakland the whole time? I, I know you've been around the California area, but has that kind of been your base the whole time? No, I actually am a San Jose native. Um, so okay. I started in San Jose, California, where, um, you know, I was raised. Mm-hmm. And um, from there, we we transitioned into uh, moving the team into Oakland when I had the opportunity to move the team. Um, I really wanted to go where I felt like that there needed to have the best representation. Um, you know, we have a conversation where it says representation matters and it absolutely does. Um, and there was very few Black women-led teams in Oakland. And mm-hmm. I felt like that there was an absolute need for resources around fighting um, gentrification, fighting um, the lack of inclusion in, in homeownership and real estate in general. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I mean, that gets into a lot of different topics, but I guess first off, you know, Oakland is traditionally associated as being sort of the center of Black culture. Why Why do you suspect there weren't many Black-led uh, agent teams there? I, I think at one time that there was, and in, in the foreclosure crisis wiped them out. Um, when you wipe out homeowners, you wipe out businesses as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, a, there's a saying that says, when America is sick, the Black community gets pneumonia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we see it um, and we feel it, the impact much greater than what America as a whole feels when it comes to economic impact. And I think a lot of doors were closed as a result of the foreclosure crisis. You know, we had agents that were losing their own homes. So it's really hard to operate in survival mode. I think we're starting to get more prepared as you know, more information is being made available, people are becoming much smarter in, in, in how they operate their businesses, but it did impact the amount of agents that were in the area. Um, and when the homeowners go away, so so do the agents. 
And describe what's happened in the area in the last 10 years, kind of since the mortgage meltdown, because from a 30,000 foot view, the home prices in Oakland and San Jose and the whole Bay Area have just shot up. And so as a real estate agent, how do you experience that and how has that changed your job? Well, I was selling REOs, which are foreclosed homes, direct with the, by the banks in 2009, 10, 11, and 12. Um, so for the, for the most part, I was working as a um, agent with the banks um, and that, that helped, kept me afloat um, during the, the, the foreclosure years. And most people know that those were very close ranks, I should say, in terms of um, the ability to be able to do that. Um, it, but what and I'm and I'm using this and I'm saying this because in 2009, 10, 11, 12, you know, the, the, the home values plummeted um, and I was selling um, REOs, um, foreclosed homes in San Jose at the time. But San Jose was one of the first real estate markets to recover. So, you know, for San Jose, it was, you know, hey, we're back in motion. You know, we're 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 getting back into the swing of things. And we didn't necessarily see that in the city of Oakland. In the city of Oakland, the, the price stayed, stayed depressed for a very long time. Um, I think that there was a stigma about Oakland about, you know, it's, it's a supply and demand type of a situation. Um, there was no demand. So there was supply and it kept the pricing very, very low. Um, and then if you look at the community as a whole, uh, I'm sure that they were um, making less money and, and so it was a different type of a, a economic environment um, for the community as a whole. So what we're seeing now between then and now is we've seen something very different. Um, San Francisco got expensive and people go, went, hey, maybe we should go to Oakland. <laughs> and, you know, it was funny because we saw that same migration into Oakland right before the foreclosure crisis. And those people ended up losing their homes, too, because they were in, in, in unstable loans. But. The difference between that that group of people and the people who are black and brown populations in the city of Oakland is they were able to bounce back, um, whereas those black and brown populations were not. So what they ended up doing is that the the populations in, in uh, San Francisco, Silicon Valley started finding a way to to hack the affordability in the Bay Area. And what did they do? They decided, hey, we'll put our stake in the ground in Oakland. And when there was an understanding of, hey. They got houses in Oakland. Come over here. Come buy houses over here, you know, and they would bring their friends and, hey, I like this little block that you're in. And they bring, you know, family members and coworkers. And all of a sudden people realized that Oakland was on the map and um, with its proximity into San Francisco with BART, um, you know, Oakland ended up being a, a prime hunting ground. So the, the supply and the demand um, made the pricing go up. As an agent, when did you start observing this? When did the people that you were showing homes to start being people that say, oh, I work for Oracle or, you know, I decided to take a look at Oakland because I just can't find a good place in San Francisco? Yeah, around 2012, I was sitting at home. I'm watching the news and they're talking about pricing in Oakland. I'm like, wait a minute. That seems a little bit high for Oakland. So I ended up, because I'm a numbers person, I'm an analytical person, and numbers tell me a story. I started doing a homebuyer workshop in one of the local lounges every Thursday 
in Oakland, every first Thursday in Oakland. And I would come in with my projector and my PowerPoint presentation. And we would go, it, we called it happy hour and home ownership. And we would have a whole home buying uh, uh, session right before the, the nightclub. <laughs> and people showed up. It was great. You know, they literally walk off the bar, come get a drink. They come in and hear about the home buying programs. But most important, they were able to see month to month the changing in the pricing in Oakland. And that was what was the, the, the biggest impact at the time because you had to start seeing the trend. Um, you're seeing, okay, 5% increase month over month, 3% increase month over month. That tells you the city is not getting any less expensive. So there's a requirement on your part to be a, to participate in this process before it gets too expensive. Um, and so, and we've seen that consistently happen since 2012, um, where we've seen properties in deep East Oakland that were 299, 289,000 are now going for five or 600,000. So that demand has absolutely um, impacted the, the home values in the city of Oakland. I mean, it sounds like kind of a double-edged sword for you, because on the one hand, as a real estate agent, as someone who works on commission, it sounds like a lot more money for you if homes are, instead of being sold for $280,000, being sold for $600,000 and even more now. But then on the other hand, you're talking about representation. And I imagine if, you know, more people from outside of Oakland and outside of the black and brown populations that have lived in Oakland are coming in, you know, that means a change in the neighborhoods. And that means, you know, some some issues that maybe didn't exist before in, in terms of expenses. So what was that like for you and, and is like for you in terms of kind of reconciling the sort of um, maybe a better, you tell me if there's a better word for it, but kind of a social justice aspect of your job with sort of the part of your job of simply making money as a real estate agent? Yeah, we do have to find a balance. Um, and, and, you know, our, our position is that we are as much as part of the community as anybody else. And um, so we, we do have to find a balance. And and I, I try to, myself and my team try to be a part of the solution and not the problem. And so that means that sometimes we're, we're some of that balance is us making sure that we're putting people in areas that they don't think that they can be in. Um, and so that's getting outside of their own personal narrative about where they feel like that they should be a part, part, you know, a placement in the city. Um, and then the other part is, is making sure that we are educating other agents in the area about what's happening um, and, and trying to get them to have a, a very humanitarian uh, connection into our role as practitioners uh, in real estate. And really just making sure that we are creating an environment, a culture, not even just within our own brokerage, but a culture of community collaboration where it's all, you know, you know, one voice, one movement, um, inclusion for everybody in the city. And that doesn't start or end with us. It also starts and ends with our, our industry, starts and ends with the 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 politics of the city and starts and ends with the um, legislation that we're seeing ordinances and also, you know, us making sure that we're sitting down with city council people, um, county supervisors and, and explaining to them what, what the unintended impact of their policies are on people. How has the housing stock in Oakland changed? 
I know the state legislature passed a bill just now saying that you can have duplexes in some homes designated as single family. So what is fluid in terms of the housing available to buy in the Bay right now? And what would you like to see change? Yeah, we have seen AB 9 and 10 pass yesterday, right? Which is great. Um, and, and I have to say, you know, housing is a supply and demand type of a situation. Your values, whether whether it's on the rental side or whether it's on the purchasing side, go up and down based on demand. Um, and sometimes, you know, cycles will affect that. But for the most part, we're seeing supply and demand affect that the most. Um, we have a huge demand, not so much of a supply. Um, and we, we've been tight. And I think we've been tight for a while. Um, even before COVID-19 showed its scary face. Um, but we, we're even more tighter now because we have huge demand of buyers um, and not enough inventory. You know, it, the interest rates have, have been historically low. We've seen people trying to participate in the housing market like never before. So that has definitely impacted the amount of inventory that we have available. Um, we've also seen a lot of corporate entities coming into the city, buying up properties, um, we've seen a lot of, you know, we've heard of a lot of corporate um, landlords that are coming into the city, buying up inventory as well. So that that does change the amount of available properties for entry level buyers to get into um, and resale. In terms of the corporate landlords, how much of a recent trend is that versus something that's always been part of the Oakland housing stock? Well, you know, Blackstone is not new. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know that they, they are not new. They, they they have been corporate landlords for quite some time. Right. Um, you know, unfortunately, we've seen some of the GSC sell some of their um, um, distressed inventory to them, which is problematic, and it, it takes away um, um, uh, properties from entry level buyers. Um, and then we have people who are um, are corporate investors that come in and, and buy up things and buy and buy hundreds of hundreds of property a year and um, flip them and, and put them into a, a higher income individual, which again, changes the barrier of entry for entry level or working families in the city. Um, so that that is, again, something that's not new, but it's not old either. Uh, <laughs> So it's, it's one of those things that I think this has been a constant battle, but we have to understand where the pressure points are, are on that so that we can appropriately address them and let people know what's going on um, so that they're educated about what's going on. And then that they can make better decisions on a seller side or mm -hmm. a, a property that may be owned by a family so they can take um, more consideration about how they um, turn properties over, how they're, they're more sustainable and solvent in their and, and how they hold property so that it doesn't get into the hands of people that don't have the interest of the, of the community at heart. And when a Blackstone or another outside investor buys a lot of properties in the Bay Area, what is typically the relationship between that company and real estate agents? Do they tend to work with real estate agents and give commissions? No, there's 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 absolutely no connection whatsoever. It's almost like it, it's wave a magic wand and poof, all the inventory is gone. You know, it is something that is a, a definitely happens behind the scenes, um, and th that's what's scary is it happens behind the scenes. It doesn't give the public the ability to participate in the process, and and those are areas and things that that absolutely should change and need to change. We've made some recommendations on a local level what we think that, that should happen. 
um, in the city of Oakland to, to better address those things. Um, but, um, you know, like for us, we, we recommended a first look program. Um, anything that is distressed in the city of Oakland, anything that is a tax, um, a tax default, we want to see that go into the hands of people now. But I think um, if the city and, and many cities around the country or even the state could um, give buyers a 30 day first look look opportunity for any distressed, whether that's tax or foreclosed properties, it gives people a fighting chance to, to, to see if there's inventory that they can cultivate into a long term wealth building strategy. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the lack of minorities in real estate. Uh, you've spoken very candidly about this in the past. Basically, for context for our listeners, the National Association of Realtors every three years or so does a member survey and they do ask about race in the member survey. And the member survey says from the spring that about one in 20 agents identify as black. And this compares to about one in eight workers in the labor force are black. So I guess, first off, why do you think that is? Why do you think there's underrepresentation of, of black people in the real estate agent profession? Well, I think it's very similar to my scenario, which is, you know, you're exposed to what you're exposed to. Um, you know, we have we have certain communities that are exposed to business owners or exposed to entrepreneurship are exposed to homeownership and investing. Um, and, and, and many times we don't think that we have a seat at the table um, because we're just automatically programmed. And I'm talking about Black people in general. Now we're automatically programmed to think that this isn't for us or we can't. It is very much so a limiting belief, but it's a limiting belief that is, exists because of the systemic biases and, and racism that we've experienced in many dynamics across the country over a long span of history or in, in a number of areas, right? Um, you know, you could almost say all areas if you really want to look at it um, from a very wide lens. But, um, you know, if, if you don't think that you can get in, um, if you think that it's a it's a, a membership only club, um, you, you know, you, you've created your own narrative about what you can and cannot do. Um, and then it's, it's pretty expensive to become a real estate agent. You have to be able to have some type of economics to get in and, and actually thrive in here. Um, if, if you don't have a, a mentorship, if you don't have the ability to walk in with the funds to get started, whether that's your key access, your MLS access, you have to have startup funds. <laughs> no one really explains that to you. At least they didn't for me. Um, so you have to have startup funds to be able to participate in the process. You know, you, our keys and our access to, to the MLS is not free or it is not inexpensive at all. Um, so we have to make sure that we're very mindful of that. And um, a, we, we also have to be very mindful that, you you know, this is a commission-based industry. So you have to be able to survive that. And um, some people get in with not with being able to have the knowledge to go hunt for their next meal and to be so be, to be able to survive a commission industry um, can be very challenging at times. So um, so that those are all things that create barriers of entry, high barriers of entry for a black person who wants to potentially become a real estate agent, loan officer, appraisal. It, it runs the gamut in all areas of real estate for us. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. I think that the I'm always interested in terms of what the barriers of entry are financially, because I think that if you're say if you if you want to become like a lawyer, it's incredibly expensive, but it's like you kind of know beforehand, well, law school is going to cost this much. And then this is going to happen. It seems like there's a lot of sort of hidden costs to being a real estate agent. Would you say that it's changed at all in in your 15 or so years as an agent? Do you think that there have been efforts to sort of uh, recruit more agents of color or, you know, sort of the, the race issue aside, have there been efforts to kind of lower those financial barriers of entry? I don't know about recruiting. Um, however, I do know that there, because I, mean, I don't think that any of the brokers, the big brokerages have um, hiring mandates. <laughs> um, if they do, it's news to me. But I do think that there is intention with a lot of these brokerages that we're seeing that have diversity circles. It allows um, there to be input for um, equity in some cases on the culture of the brokerage as a whole um, so that people can start seeing things from the lens of all type of people. Um, I do see a lot of that. So that's that is an improvement for sure. Um, I do think that there is a lot more education that's that we're seeing um, in my 15 years, not just from the brokerages. I think in general, you know, social media has has opened the doors for people to have voices in very unique spaces. And so we're seeing podcasts like Earn Your Leisure um, or Blacker Pockets that are, are, are leading the way of, of education. Um, uh, the National Association of Real Estate Brokers, NARAB, we're going to start deploying our clubhouse talks around um, our political action committee and our policies um, and things that impact um, Black people every day in, in real estate, whether you're buying, selling, or or, or whether you are a practitioner, we're, we're trying to make sure that we're educating people where they're at. So we're definitely going to start deploying something uh, September 8th on Clubhouse. We'll be um, holding weekly sessions so people can listen and learn. Yeah, I want to talk about what the National Association of Real Estate Brokers is doing definitely in a second. I did want to push you a little bit on sort of the the diversity I think workshops that you mentioned at the start in terms of what the major brokerages are doing. Because I think that it's hard for me sometimes as an outsider and a journalist to sort of know in terms of like diversity, inclusion initiatives, like what is kind of window dressing and what is really a substantive thing that may actually, you know, make black or brown real estate agents feel more included and feel more that they have a chance to make it. So could you just talk a little bit more about what you see as like actually like substantive uh, undertakings by other private brokerages or associations to actually help the situation. Yeah, I like that the word, the term that you use, window dressing, <laughs> because there is some of that, of course. But I do think that um, I think Compass does a really good good job that they they have their um, their black network of of agents that allows them to convene and also um, have public voices around um, increasing black home ownership. Um, I also think that KW, Keller Williams, does a great job in, in having um, a very uh, intentional diversity circle for, for their their Black uh, agents, even to the point where, where they do their Keller Williams 
um, annual event, they actually have programming specifically for their Black agents, which I think is great because that means that you're a part of a, a very big gathering for employee for not, not just your employees, but your, your agents. And it gives them the opportunity to bring in their, their peers um, on that platform as well and, and help cross-educate them on things that may be important in their communities that they just may not know about because it, that's just not what they're exposed to. So um, there, there is some things that are, there are some brokerages that are gone beyond the, the window dressing for sure. Um, and then, you know, we see a lot of the smaller brokerages who, you know, that's kind of their wheelhouse. They work with black, um, black or brown um, uh, uh, buyers and sellers. And so that, that is their wheelhouse in the boutique real estate offices. They're a little bit more intentional. They have a lot more areas to, to, to take it and run with it. So, um, so, but we are seeing some people that are really trying to intentionally trying to be boots on the ground around this process of inclusion for sure. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. So regarding the National Association of Real Estate Brokers, that's an organization that really interests me because they've been around since the late 1940s. And I, I believe they've traditionally you know, focused on African-American agents. What is their kind of modern day relevancy and their modern day role in the real estate industry? Yeah, thank you for asking. Yeah, I, I've been a part of the National Association of Real Estate Brokers since I got into the business 17 years ago, I really wanted to know where people that look like me in real estate were. Um, I grew up in San Jose as a member of the youth council of the NAACP. Um, and I was actually a, a the president of the local NAACP. Um, and I served when the um, a lot of my friends were discriminated at a local Denny's in the 90s, and that facilitated a national boycott of Denny's. Um, now we see a very different Denny's. <laughs> Actually, I, <laughs> see, I remember that, the Denny's. Boy yeah, we see a that. very different Denny's today. We see, you know, uh, um, pictures of, of Black people on, on their marketing. We see Black management. Um, we, we, we've seen a dynamic change because of that, that, that boycott, and that really did affect me, and it really did stay with me, and um, it, it, it made me want to go and seek and search for something very similar to that when I got into real estate. Um, and it's because of, of, of me being in NARAB, it shaped my thoughts around how I operate as a practitioner, how I operate as a team owner, how I operate as a, a person who um, um, can change the dynamics of real estate in my community. So um, when we convene with NARAB, we convene for a purpose and intentionally um, to make sure that there's a, a better environment for everyone, uh, specifically Black, Black buyers, sellers, and real estate agents in homeownership. What would you say is the relationship right now between NARAB and the National Association of Realtors in your experience? We still we still uh, work hand in hand with one another. You know, I think that we have a very unique relationship now. I can't say that that's always been the case for obvious reasons. Um, many people don't realize that Black people could not be a part of the National Association of Realtors, which is why um, NARAB was created and, and, and chartered in 1947, 
Um, but today, we, it's a very different relationship. We had the national president come to our conference in Cleveland this year. Um, not only did he come to our conference, we were all in the uh, Madam Lydia Pope's uh, suite one night, and he popped up on us. <laughs> I think it was like 11 o'clock at night in, in, in the suite and just came and said hi and, 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 and hung out with us and, um, you know, really convened with the, the membership um, not from the podium, but we're, you know, with boots on the ground with membership. And um, I think it's, I think we, we've come a long way in, in, in changing our relationship with one another. And I think that that's a good thing for our industry. It's a, it, it needs to be a requirement um, of our industry. And I think that we're seeing a lot of, of the languaging um, around ethics change because of how people are um, um, seeing things now migrate into a better space with fair housing and how people are operating um, as practitioners as well. So we're holding, we're holding, they're holding people to a higher standard um, around fair housing and around um, how they operate professionally um, um, as a realtor. So one final area, which is somewhat related to both Oakland and what we're talking about in terms of uh, Black representation in the real estate profession is the Black home ownership rate. And I, I know this is an issue that you work on and, and have some strong feelings about. I mean, the Black home ownership rate is, I believe, at its lowest since the 1960s. Um, it's 41%, according to federal data which is kind of amazing in my point of view, because it's actually lower than it was before the 1967 Fair Housing Act passed. I guess, why do you, why do you think this is? And, and what do you, I mean, is this, what is going on with that rate? And, and what are some of your thoughts about it right now? Well, we have to understand that, that uh, we were hit hard during the foreclosure crisis. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in like areas like Sacramento, Places where we saw a huge, uh, a, a huge um, uh, uh, population of, of black homeowners, you know, like sixty percent of, the, of the, the community lost their homes. That's huge, sixty percent, and that's and that's just the baseline. Um, so when you start understanding the impact um, that all of these things systemically, racially has on our communities, you, you realize it's really hard to pick yourself up by the bootstraps, right? And so you're, you're, we're seeing this, but we're also still not discussing how people are still losing their homes. Um, and, and it's happening. And people are, are exiting out of homeownership and not coming back. Um, the, the, the people who were buying your great-grandmother, your grandmother, you know, work blood, sweat, and tears to make sure that their ex- even if they couldn't make a signature, they, their ex was accounted for on a deed. And we have people that go and lose their those homes or they, they sell them for pennies on the dollar because they don't see the value in them or they don't keep them up so that they are um, um, being able to be sold at market value. Uh, you know, these conversations need to be had. The, the probate process um, is, is another way that that strips people of, of their of their equity and, and of their wealth. Um, you know, I've, I had a probate issue that came with the process for five years, uh, five years of, of court costs and, 
and all the fun stuff that comes along with probate processes um, really does uh, put a, a, a damper on your ability to hold and continue to have wealth. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of factors that are, 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 those are the people that are already in homeownership that we're seeing lose. Now let's talk about people trying to get into homeownership. You know, we typically have lower credit scores or sometimes we're just credit invisible. Um, and what we do know is one of the things that impact us the most is student loan debt. Um, for people who are leaving college, our white counterparts, um, are, 10% of them hold student loan debt, 40% of us um, hold student loan debt. So that is a, a huge factor in, in us being able to get into homeownership because that student loan debt, it, the way it's, it's looked at, can and will affect you getting into, into homeownership. Then we look at um, the, the, uh, the low-level price um, increases with the, the, the GSEs, um, and those have have definitely impacted us as well. Um, and, and, you know, we, we, we at this point need to be considering um, how we're even looking at credit um, because we have some people that are credit invisible. Um, and then you, you also look at the um, opportunities around just understanding of resources. Um, and, and that is, is, has been problematic as well. Um, people aren't educated properly on getting into homeownership. So you look at all of these different things that are constantly coming at people, you know, black home, a potential black buyer. And, you know, all of a sudden that looks like it's a pretty daunting task to get into home ownership. And it is. Um, and we need to have more black practitioners on the lending, buying, um, uh, appraising side to, to help transition people in because it, it's there are all of those circumstances and culturally we do need people that can lead people into homeownership, uh, understanding what the challenges in the past or challenges that they need to overcome and, and helping remove those barriers to get into homeownership. So those are all, a lot of those things are, are suppressing our ability to get into homeownership. And that's why we're not seeing those numbers drastically change. And then of course, if we want to get into, you know, wealth gaps, <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, income gaps, that's a whole nother conversation to have. Yeah. And there's a lot going on with the decline in the homeownership rate. Like you mentioned the, the staggering statistic in Sacramento, like the people that are, the people that are exiting homeownership, do you see any of those returning at this point or do you, or is it sort of a situation where they were stung by the housing crash and this is just a whole generation might be over over dramatic, but a whole kind of swath of people that have just decided this is not something for me. There's a lot of that that happened. I mean, that's pretty traumatic when, when you lose a home. Um, and then we also have to make get an understanding that the children that went through that are still holding on to that. That's our millennials. They're holding on to that. They saw their parents lose their homes. They saw the the, the distress um, that their parents or their grandparents went through when it came to this house. And many of them are going, how can I deal with that? That doesn't look like fun. That doesn't seem like it's the, the, the dream that people talk about. We, as the people who are boots on the ground, 10 toes down, um, have to try to help them overcome that. And so we, we stand in the, in the roles of, of not only just real estate agents, but also sometimes psychologists and 
um, all these other things that, that come from a place of healing. Yeah, I mean, it's it would seem like that there's a lot of psychologists sounds right to me because I think that there's if you if right if you saw that your parents you know get kicked out of their home foreclosed from their home whatever exactly happened back in the mid two thousands and you see agents loan officers that aren't from your background that don't look like you I mean it would seem to me that there would be a lot of people that are just saying. Like home ownership, this, this seems terrible. Like I'm having to mm-hmm. sign all this paperwork. I'm having to give all this information about me. I'm having to take out all these loans. There's no guarantee that I'll be able to stay in the home. I mean, how, what is it like convincing people that it's home ownership is good, that home ownership is this, you know, is the American dream and is this thing that will build wealth creation? Is this thing that will even, you know, do this broader social good of sort of narrowing the, the racial um, wealth gap? Well, we definitely have to put some cool back into it. Um, and we definitely have to be repetitive in our approach. Um, the messaging has to be consistent. We have to say it over and over again, even though we feel like we've said it enough. We can't say it more uh, um, any more than, than we have to say it as much as humanly possible. And we have to show people. Look at this black family. They did it. You can do it too. Um, and so for me, when I'm, I'm on social media these days, I'm making sure that the families are holding the signs and we're, we're celebrating them. Um, and we're celebrating that, that walk through the threshold with the key. Um, we're, we're, we're creating an environment where, where we're celebrating people um, um, getting into home ownership. We're, we're celebrating the, that accomplishment. Um, it's not about us. It's about the families. It's about the, the journeys that they're taking. Sometimes when they're closing one chapter so they can open another one, we're, we're telling their story. So we're definitely making sure that our content, at least in, in with my team, we're definitely making sure that we're, we're, we're creating a face to home ownership that goes beyond what they've experienced. And we're hoping that people can see the victory in others so that they can heal themselves and move forward. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're healing hearts. And so that that hopefully the mind and the brain will follow. Yeah, that's really helpful. So this has been a good conversation. I hope our listeners agree. Uh, Shinko Badger, uh, Corcoran Global Living, head of the Badger Real Estate Group. Uh, Thank you so much for taking your time on this Houses in Motion podcast. And yeah, take care. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. On September 27th and 28th at the Omni Hotel in Frisco, Texas, Housing Wire will host its second annual event, which will be in person for the first time. Housing Wire Annual offers each guest the opportunity to gather with top industry professionals for exclusive content, technology demonstrations, and unbeatable networking. Find out more by going to the events tab on the Housing Wire site. You won't want to miss out on this event, so register by September 20th. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. I hope you have a great afternoon. If you haven't already, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on all the hottest stories crossing our news desk daily. The podcast is now available wherever you like to listen. Make sure to tune in tomorrow.